Hello and welcome to the National Gallery of Ireland podcast, a series of programmes designed to take us beyond the gallery walls. My name is Sinead Rice and I'm the Head of Education at the Gallery. I have a varied background in art practice, history and education, but my first and my enduring love is photography. This podcast series is inspired by two temporary exhibitions of photography at the Gallery. Moment in Time, a legacy of photographs, works from the Bank of America collection, which presents iconic photographs from Henry Cartier-Bresson, Robert Frank, Dorothea Lange and many more. And our other exhibition, View of Ireland, Collecting Photography, which presents a selection of works from the gallery's growing photography collection in an Irish context, with works by national and international photographers, including Amelia Steen, Eamon Doyle and Inga Morath. Both exhibitions demonstrate the magic of this art form and include a myriad of techniques, processes and prints. In this third and final episode, renowned photographer and filmmaker Perry Ogden meets the legendary creative director at large of American Vogue magazine, Grace Coddington, to discuss the magic of photography and the role it has played in Grace's life. From her days as a model in late 50s London to her role as a fashion editor at British Vogue and then creative director of American Vogue. Grace has collaborated with many of the great fashion and portrait photographers of the last 60 years, including Norman Parkinson, Helmut Newton, Guy Bourdin, Bruce Weber, Annie Leibovitz, Peter Lindbergh and Stephen Meisel, creating images for Vogue, some of which now sell at auction for very high prices. This episode was recorded on location at Grace's apartment in New York in January 2020. Well, Grace, I'm very happy to be sitting here with you in your apartment in New York that you share with your long-time partner Didier uh, and we're surrounded by amazing beautiful photographs from all periods so much stuff it's crazy I can't cram any more in now <laughs> but tell me first I'd like to take you back in time uh, to your childhood really to Anglesey and Holyhead a town that I pass through from time to time do you come by boat from Ireland? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes if I do a shoot, I, I go with my equipment and cameras and drive, and I enjoy that. It's so funny because, I, you know, I, live, I lived in Triather Bay, and my parents had a hotel there. And it's you know, three miles from Hollyhead. And you can almost see Ireland across. But I never went to Ireland until... So many years later, after I moved to London and left home and things, and I never took the opportunity to take the boat that was right there. Did London seem a long way away? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I went there the first time when I was about 17, and it was very glamorous. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hardly moved at all when I was a child. You know, we had a perfect situation because we had this hotel, which was a sort of holiday hotel, and it was right on the beach. And I spent my, I spent my days there. And, you know, summer holiday, you're certainly not going to go somewhere else. Today, you probably would. You'd have to go to, I don't know, somewhere very far away, India or something. But... Um, in those days, one didn't take holidays, uh, uh, even away from home. I mean, I, you might have gone to my place for a holiday, but but you wouldn't go very much further, you know. So you stayed within England if you were English, or Wales if you were Welsh, or whatever. But uh, So I spent my time there, and um, I had a little sailing boat, and 
all summer I just sailed backwards and forwards. And then in the winters it was very, very rough and bleak and everybody was gone, you know, because it was really just a holiday destination. Um, and it was really only for the month of August. But um, I have to say I love the winters and their bleakness and their roughness. And I just used to sit on the rocks and wa watch the waves crashing. And it's, you know, it's hypnotizing. You just, I sat there for hours on my own. So you'd be very at home in Ireland. Yes. Yeah. And tell me, how did, how did, how did fashion magazines find you or how did you find them? Um, well, I think, um, I think my mother and then my sister, they used to get Vogue. I mean, they used to get, my mother used to get um, Picture Post and National Geographic and The Lady. <laughs> and, um, and then occasionally Vogue. So I think I started looking at those pictures and, and dreaming and, and realizing there's another world somewhere, you know, as I grew up and then, um, then I started getting it. But um, as I've been quoted saying so many times, you know, it was probably about six months late <laughs> by the time we got there. But still, it didn't really matter because, you know, the pictures were the same. And I remember being completely transported by them and thinking this is kind of wonderful. I didn't really think I would ever be part of them, but it was, you know, it was good to look at them and dream. Can you remember any of the pictures that, that particularly touched you at the time? I think, I, I think there were a lot of Norman Parkinson that I remember, and I do remember when, um, and it, w it was just when I was thinking of coming to London, um, there was a model competition and they talked about, you know, how Parkinson used to discover models on the street and things like that. There were these pictures of this beautiful woman called Nana von Schleber. And I thought, oh, she was amazing. And he'd found her in Sweden and she became a big model that, that he worked with. She, of course, was the mother of Uma Thurman. And they, they do look very alike in that they had those very wide-set eyes. And, you know, many, many, many years later, I worked with Uma when she was like 14. And she was such a beauty and just gorgeous. And tell me, so it was in 59 that you entered this model competition, competition yeah. the model competition, and you won the young model. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and basically became a model. Yes. Well, you know, if, if, if you have an introduction into Vogue, it really does mean something, you know. So I started working for them. Um, and I've worked with Parkinson, you know, which is... I, I actually worked with him just before the competition. And because um, I worked in a coffee bar in London. That's how I earned my living. And this guy came in one day and said, um, 
you know, I have a good friend called Norman Parkinson. I went, oh, my God, Norman Parkinson? He said, yes, um, I think you should meet him. You know, have you done any modeling? I said, no, I, I, was, I did, in fact, do a model course with a lady called Cherry Marshall. Um, but they had told me that I, I would never make it as a model. I mean, maybe I could be a runway model, but forget the photography bit. I would be no good. Anyway, he said, would you like to meet Norman Parkinson? I said, absolutely. So he set up an appointment. And um, I had some not very good pictures taken because it was all part of the model course. You get these photos to take with you to show photographers. And um, he's like, oh, I don't want to see those pictures. No, 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 just turn around. And, okay, you got the job. And I'm like, oh, fantastic. He said, are you free on Saturday? I said, yeah, you bet. And um, he said, well, actually, it's a nude. Uh, you know, are you fine with that? And I, 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 I didn't really register. I just knew that I was going to be photographed by Parkinson. So I thought that was so incredible. So I said, oh, fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, of course, when I got there on the Saturday, it was out in the woods where he has a house or had a house um, in the south of England. And um, no, I had a lovely day. <laughs> So you were very fortunate, really, to have Parkinson as one of your first... Yeah, because then when when the model competition came along, you know, he'd already met me and things, so I had a bit of a jump start, if you like. And later, when you became an editor and a stylist, was he one of the first people you worked with? Um, pretty much, yes. Yes, it be, it, because it was, um, well, he did all the trips and things at that time, and he did amazing trips. And, um, you know, it happens, it happens now, it happens. There's a rotation of people, and they get older, and they get older, and they're not so good at traveling and things. And then the young ones come along, and they take everything from the old ones. And, you know, that's kind of what happened to me, because... There were some lovely editors at British Vogue, and one in particular called Sheila Wetton. I don't know if you ever met her, but she's quite an extraordinary Yeah, I remember her. Woman. I mean, really extraordinary. She used to be a model for Molinier, and then she worked as an editor for many, many years. And she was there until Anna Winter took over. And the old editor, Beatrix Miller, suggested that Perhaps it was time to retire. I mean, I think she was maybe 72, 73 or something um, because things would change. And they did, you know, and it's just as well she left. But anyway, she was getting too old to travel. And um, there was another one called Melanie Miller, and she was also old. So what they had you do in at that point is the older editor would get the clothes for you and then you because you have you're young and have the energy etc you would go off on the trip so that happened to me with parkinson very very soon and we went to jamaica and i'd never really traveled you know i'd been to paris um 
Yeah, and I've been to Italy. I've been to Sicily, but that and Germany, because I went to Germany a lot modeling. But um, but I hadn't really traveled. My first trip was to Jamaica, and I'd never been to the Caribbean. And I have to say, as I stepped off the plane, when the warmth hits you, it's quite extraordinary. And I kind of fell in love with the Caribbean from then on. And, you know, Parkinson loved the Caribbean because he had a house in Tobago. There was a beautiful um, series that you did in the Seychelles. I've, al I've always loved that one picture on the beach of the girl dressed in black and then a white hat. You're seeing her sort of slightly from behind. You don't see her face and her arms are out. And I remember that making a big impression on me. The Seychelles was a fabulous trip, yes. We, we built this story. He was, he, was a, he was the beginning of me loving doing photo shoots as narratives. And I guess that was probably one of the first narratives because we made up this story that the girl had been washed ashore with a trunk full of clothes. Um, and we went to the Seychelles at a point, I think it was like the first inaugural plane that came in. I mean, you could get there before, but you had to go by boat. Uh, and this was the, the first plane. And I think in those days, that's it happened a lot in fashion photography. You, you, you were on inaugural first flights to here or there. I mean, if there's nowhere that to go now that you could be first because everybody's been everywhere but then the Seychelles was quite difficult to get to and so we had this you know you, you, you used to go a week in advance to do a recce as Parks would say <laughs> and you just drove around looking for your pictures you know that fit into the story and he, he had this idea he wanted to he heard about the coco de may you know the big coconuts that they have and they only have them in the seychelles and he wanted to do this picture which it was like a, a russo you know the one in the jungle with the tigers and things coming out but if they actually don't have any animals there you know he had this dream to create this jungle scene so we took a um a, a taxidermy um, tiger with us. <laughs> we carried it all over the Seychelles. It was so crazy. And at that point, it was very difficult to get from island to island. So, and we wanted to go to Bird Island, which is a picture I just adore uh, with. Uh, and we had to, um, we chartered a fishing boat. And it took, I want to say, like, seven or eight hours or something and we were all so seasick we were like throwing up over the edge and eventually we got to this bird island which you think is a dream and you look at the picture and it's like a dream but I as we were coming in you, you, you could smell because it's a bird sanctuary it's Nothing but birds there. I mean, now I think there's a hotel on the island, and that, but the, at this point there was nothing. It was a, you know, you were actually not really supposed to go there. And it smelled so bad. <laughs> we were like holding our noses and taking these pictures, but they, you know, they, they turned out beautiful. And then there was another thing that was so funny because his other 
thing that he wanted apart from the jungle is he he wanted a picture of her standing on a teeny island that had one palm tree and um, nothing else. And so we went everywhere looking to see if we, you know, I mean, it's like a cartoon island picture. And um, one day, Wenda, his wife, came back because she was going in one direction, we were going in the other. And she said, I found it, I found it, <laughs> you know, I found this island. So we went back to look at it, and of course the sea had gone out or something, and it was actually joined to the, so it wasn't an island. But we found out when the tide came back up, and we did this picture, and she's standing on that little cartoon island with one tree, and it's so cute. But those kind of stories were so fun to do but you need time you yeah know? and nobody will give you that time now no no that's um i mean i even remember in the late 90s doing a story with italian vogue and going to mississippi for a week to recce yeah coming, coming home yeah. for christmas and then going back but it but it, you know you're allowed you're able to explore these ideas yeah. in a way that's very hard now and also, you know, you would go three or four days in advance with the model so that she could get a tan and be relaxed and so on and so on. And, and you, you know, now everything is done by by looking at um, pictures of the place, but you can't really know what it's like. You don't know what it is, you know, a few degrees to the left and right, and you don't know what the light is really at which time of day. You can guess, but um, there's nothing better than to drive through it. And with Parkinson, we always drove through it and did a, you know, a run-through, so to speak. Um and then, you know, we made sure we came back at that time because the light is there or whatever. And tell me, Grace, in those days, the crews were much smaller. For example, on that trip, yeah. would you have had hair and makeup? No. The model did her own? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't have an assistant. And he had one assistant. And he took his wife with him and she wrote the travel story. And they always went with a travel story in those days. Now they, you're lucky if you get a small caption shot in wherever, you know. But, but it made it interesting because yeah. you read about the place. And Grace, just going back to your modeling days, yeah. who were the other photographers apart from Parks that kind of made an impression on you? No, I always wanted to work with keyboard. And I saw his pictures in French Vogue, really, that were remarkable and something very different and they so they had an intrigue about them that um, I really it spoke to me as they say um, but I liked working with Parkinson you know because because and I didn't work with him very much actually when I was really a model and and border I, I didn't really work with until I was no longer a model but he photographs me several times when I was an editor that happened to several photographers um Helmut Newton I work with and again I, I work with I have there's more pictures of me taken after I stopped modeling than before I mean certainly you won't know any of the pictures that he took of me when I was a model, um, I had I had a funny career really. I uh, I 
I was a very 60s girl because I, you know, I was close to Vidal Sassoon and he, um, I have very good hair, so he liked to do haircuts on me and he did that very famous five-point cut on me, which really got me a hell of a lot of work because you didn't need a hairdresser to come along to the shoot because it, it didn't, you know, it, it was perfect always. And um, so I was part of that. You know, I worked a bit with Bailey, but, you know, I can't say that I was like a Jean Shrimpton or Sue Murray or Penelope Tree. Um, but I worked with him and I worked with all those, you know, the bad boys. <laughs> Duffy, Donald, Donovan, and, and Bailey, you know. And I hung out with them and went for dinner with them, and you know, it was very much part of the scene then. Um, and what was, was that, what was that time like in terms of, I, I imagine you just ought well, to get for granted. yes. Yeah, no, you know. But didn't on reflection. Know. Um, on reflection, it was a fabulous time to have lived through, you know. Um, you, you used to go to nightclubs all night and things and get up in the morning and I never got into a drug thing or anything but uh, um, but I had a fun time it was it was good I didn't travel very much I mean just Paris and back Paris and back which was lovely um, but I had a car crash in the middle so that stopped my work for about two years. I smashed my face in. That was the first time I smashed my face in. Um, but then I went back to work after it was somewhat healed. And um, and then I lived out the next four or five years, um, you know, by which time I was getting a bit older and all the younger ones were coming along and um, it was suggested in no uncertain terms that I was getting a bit long in the tooth. So, <laughs> um, but I, at the same time I was, I was offered a job at British Folk and so I, I, you know, I've had such a lucky life of being in the right place at the right time and um, that was a fun time to start being an editor also, you know. So when you became an editor, Grace, were you able to choose who you wanted to work with in the uh, early days? Yeah. Um, Beatrix Miller was an extraordinary editor at Vogue, um, editor-in-chief. And um, I think she developed a lot of young talent in you know, not just editors, but writers and photographers and everybody adored her, you know. Um, I think she certainly made Bailey's career too, you know. Um, and they all worked for her. Uh, and she gave you your head that, you know, you, you were able, I was able to find my style, if you like, or my, you know. I, she never said you have to do this or you have to do that or you have to work with him. And everybody came to her with ideas, you know. And I came with a lot of different photographers. Um, and I stayed with her for, um, I think it's 19 years, you know, a, lo a long time. 
until she retired. And you started working with, with a number of the photographers that you had modeled for, like Helmut, Guy Bourdin. Yeah. yeah. And others. Yeah. I mean, one I, mo I worked with as a model, but I didn't really work with as an editor after is um, David Montgomery. I worked quite a bit with him. Um, he actually did the very well-known picture of me with a five-point haircut by Vidal that I think was in Queen magazine. And how did things shift through the 70s? Because when I first started looking at Vogue when I was still in school, it was probably that period in the mid-70s. I remember the Guy Bourdin photographs you did um, with the car, the Cadillac, was it? The American yeah, car and the two was girls on the road. Car, yes. <laughs> and then, and the then three it went, girls actually, and I girls. was one of them. <laughs> it was a bad. So you hadn't, you hadn't given up modelling. No. <laughs> well, it was cheaper if you use me, you know. The, I, so, so I quite often got into my own pictures. Well, the the, the famous ones of of you in the pool and the yeah, swimsuit with Helmut, with Helmut yeah. which is a wonderful yeah. series. Yeah, I like that. Would I be right in saying there was a little bit of a shift in British folk that it, it sort of went a little bit American and very daylight? And yeah. Well, I think it started taking um, younger photographers um, and it was that whole um, scene of those guys that lived in Paris, but they went to New York, you know, um, and there was a group of them and it was... Alex Chatelain, Patrick de Marchalier, um, Mike Reinhardt, uh, who else was there? Oh, there were a lot of them. But those are the ones I think that worked for Vogue. For Vogue, yeah. Um, and Bill Cunningham, the lovely street photographer guy, used to call them the Frenchies, but as I said, they... they they weren't really all French. I mean, Patrick was French, but I think he was the only French one. And somewhere in there came Arthur Elgott, too. You know, that was the beginning of I started working with him. Um, and Dance and Daylight and, and Esme, yeah. I remember. And 35mm and, yeah. Yeah, no, Esme, yes, I took her to China with Alex. And very, very, I mean, uh, actually American folk had just been, but they went actually with um, Arthur Elgort, but they photographed Nancy Kissinger. They didn't do fashion. So I went and we did fashion with Esme, yeah. I mean, fashion, I don't know. I <laughs> To talk about freedom, I, I just, I was... Um, it was such a visual moment when you step off the plane and you see 10 million people all dressed the same, you know. They're all in, they were still in uniform. And, you know, it's a hideous thing to say, but I thought it looked very beautiful. <laughs> there was some, I've always kind of liked uniforms anyway, but... So I went off to number one department store and bought a pair of pants and a little jacket. Well, I bought several, actually, for myself and... And then we photographed Esme on a train in this little outfit and another one which was a take on the Mao picture standing by the water. So, I mean... I mean, we did intermingle it with some other ridiculous fashions that I had taken with me 
that were very Chinese, except they went, but, <laughs> you know, it was... But that's wonderful to be able to respond in that way and to be able to do what you... I mean, a lot then. I, one used to buy accessories or something from wherever you were, um, like, you know, jewelry or something that added, that made you really feel you were where you were, which was fun. And you had time to do it, which, you know, now you go to Africa for a day or something. <laughs> you, know, you don't have a whole lot of free time. And tell me, in the early 80s, you started working with Bruce Weber. Yeah. And um, I think the early pictures are quite folky, natural, nature, daylight. And then I remember the story you did, uh, inspired by Edward Weston. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love um, that. That I think Bruce... I have an amazing book that he made for me from that. I should show it to you. Yeah, I'd love to it's see that. It's extraordinary. Um, unfortunately, it's sort of curling at the edges, but it's 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 a wonderful that memory of that. That seemed to me uh, a sort of paradigm shift in fashion photography. Right. That moment had a huge... Yes, because up until that point, everybody was wearing, you know, they were shooting in very, very big 2K lights and hard lights. And so they had very heavy makeup on and it was all very pink and, you know, but it was heavy and hair was very at that moment it was kind of stiff and I don't think it was a, a very pretty moment in fashion um, big shoulders working girl all that sort of stuff and um, and Bruce came along and you know he just ruffled the hair and scrubbed the faces clean and put everybody in antique clothes, you know, all those white Victorian night dresses and things that, um, you know, basically that whole look kind of created Ralph Lauren, you know. And at the time he was doing um, the campaigns for Ralph. So everything is very intermingled and one thing feeds the other thing and and, and so on. And yes, it, it changed everything. And then, you know, the girl came through, which before they were like a model, you know, which is... Almost like they were dressed up. So dressed yeah. up, very high This is heels. late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then Bruce took all that away, obviously, yeah. with you. Yeah. And tell me, how did you meet and, Bruce? And how they, did that they, opportunity... They, they did sort of go side by side for a while, you know. There was the one side of the style and then the other side, and people used both and until, you know, slowly it went into... Shifted the, all the way yeah. across. And it was also... I mean, I'm probably jumping forward and I'm not very good at dates, but then uh, the same thing when it came from that whole opulence of a lot of jewelry and stuff which you know Bruce might put a lot of jewelry in his pictures because he but he liked all that turquoise Santa Fe stuff you know um, but then along came grunge and that did a kind of reverse turn another as shift, well yeah. another shift but it was sort of in a way the same shift as Bruce's it was just a different take on it you know how did you meet Bruce? How did you start working with Bruce? How does that happen? Um, you saw something in him. I, well, 
I used to work with another photographer a lot called Barry Lattigan. Um, and he moved from England. I mean, I worked with him as a model as well. Uh, and he moved from England and came to live in America. And he had an agent called Nan Bush. And uh, he kept saying, you must meet Nan. And, you, and she has this other guy who's a photographer and you must meet him. And it was Bruce. Um, but actually the person who started working with him quite a bit before me was Liz Tilbaris. She totally fell for him and his style. I mean, she had been at, just before completely immersed in that very fake 70s, 80s, crazy makeup thing. And then she met Bruce and completely did an about turn. And um, she started working with him and she loved it because he had all these people and these boys. And I was always intimidated by doing the shoots I did with him if there were a lot of people. And I hated dressing boys. So it was hard for me, but she loved it. Boys, children, more the merrier. So she did a lot of incredible shoots with him um, before me. And then one time he was supposed to shoot the, I mean, I met him. I loved him. He showed me his book. He had, I think, one fashion picture in it. And the rest were pictures of dogs. And uh, <laughs> I remember meeting him. I was in Barry Lattigan's apartment in this little basement somewhere around here. And he was really sweet, and 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 I, and you know, and he was very serious about. It. He said, "This is what I love," and there were no fashion pictures in it. I think there was a picture of his old Chevy and dogs, and, and as I say, I think there was one picture of a girl. Anyway, he um, he was supposed to shoot the couture with Liz. And um, at the last minute, her husband had an accident, and so she couldn't go. So I went, and I shot the couture, and I think that was the first time I worked with him, and it was so much fun. We shot the girl, Talisa. Didier was the hairdresser. He cut her hair off in this Louise Brooks thing that became really famous. And we did these really fun pictures with a load I of poodles. I think I'm seeing one of, oh yeah, with the poodles. I remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later I'm looking at a picture here. And I'm pretty sure Didier did this too with the, the twigs. And oh, the twigs. And That's on much there. later. Is that yes. much later? Yeah. I think it's much later. Yeah. yeah. But um, That's a memorable shoot too. Yes. It is, and you know, it never really saw the light of day. Why was that? This one that you're looking at. Yeah. Well, it was actually done for Karl Lagerfeld for his um, his line that was called Karl Lagerfeld. And Karl really liked Bruce, and so he booked him to do this, and he had me as a stylist or whatever. And um, we went to his place... He had a chateau outside Paris, and it was so beautiful. And he had he just moved in, so it wasn't really very done up. Um, it was quite empty, the actual chateau, but the woods around were 
you know, carpeted with bluebells, and they were very, it was very beautiful. And then the girls from Karl Lagerfeld came with all these clothes, which were so fashion, which of course freaked Bruce out. And he started doing nudes and things. <laughs> and Carl's like, oh, it's fine, it's fine. You know, whatever you do, whatever you want. I, you know, it's very inspiring. And then, yeah, so we managed to put a couple of dresses on. And then um, Bruce said, you know, I need some guys. And, and anyway, it would be a good thing. We can get rid of the the women from Karl Lagerfeld's, let's have them go and find some guys. And we're in the country, in France. And we shoved them off in the car, and they came back like a couple of hours later with these two guys, which were kind of army guys, and they didn't speak English. <laughs> and they didn't, I think they thought it was an orgy or something, I don't know. Anyway, they came back, and they were sort of pretty hideous looking. And... And I'm looking at them and I say, you know, Bruce, what am I supposed to dress them in? And he said, well, just, you know, put some twigs over them or something. So I'm like, oh, God. And they're stripped down to their underwear. And I get all this ivy and wrap it around and, you know, DDA's there and he's helping me. And then he gets completely carried away and he starts putting, you know, I see him go for this log and he picks up this log, puts it on the girl's head. And it went from there. And the pictures are, I think, extraordinary. But um, the people from Lagerfeld were freaked out and hated them. I think they appeared once in Women's Wear Daily or something. They escaped there. Um, and then it was shut down and the advertising became pictures from the runway. But Carl loved them. He loved them, but he couldn't overrule his company. The advertising so, manager. So, yeah. So, you know, that was such a frustration that we never saw them printed. So then, sort of around the same time, um, Beatrix Miller said, oh, for the Christmas issue, I want to do The English Woman and Her Garden. And, you know... Maybe Bruce should do it. And uh, so we went off and did that. And, and, and that became lots of pictures with you flowers and twigs. And, 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 you know, it, to be fair, Cecil Beaton did it. You know, it's, <laughs> um, it, everything comes from somewhere, you know. It's a big circle in photography and fashion and everything. I mean, that's what the... The, um, the the subject is at the Met coming out in May is that it's, you know, it keeps coming back. You know, it's like the 70s or the 30s or the 20s keep coming back. Um, but the greats reinterpret, make it fresh, yeah. make it new. Yeah, yeah, it's very different to, because it, I think um, Cecil Beaton's things were in a very studio situation, pretty much with sort of crinkly paper in the background or whatever. And But they were inspiring, you know. And he loved garden and he loved flowers, so yes. But then 
because we've seen people try to do it since, and the first thing you might say is, "Oh yes, they're trying to do Bruce." Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. And, and yeah. when you look and at Bruce's, are. when you look at Bruce's, you don't necessarily say, "Oh, he's trying to do Cecil." Yeah. You have to know yeah. a little bit. Yes. Yes. Well, I think Bruce's went beyond beaten. You know, I just it, I know he liked the beaten scrapbooks and things because actually for that shoot, um, he had wanted. When we got the pictures back, which were fabulous, they were all cut up and made into a collage, <laughs> and I flipped out. And there was an artist with me, I forget his name, who Bruce brought along, and he did lots of drawings at the same time. And so there's this huge collage, but there were no fashion pictures anywhere. <laughs> and and B. Miller flipped out, and I flipped out, because I thought, oh, after all that work, you know, and the pictures were gorgeous. Um, so we said, well, maybe not the collage, and I think Bruce was a bit upset. I know he was. But he did, he was good, and he printed the pictures just as the pictures, and they were fabulous, and they ran like 20 pages in, in Vogue, and yes, they have become very copyable um, and they keep it keeps popping back you know I see it even there were some covers of Beyonce and things with big flowers on her hair recently and Tommy I miss just this idea of collaboration and and the people you've chosen to collaborate with and how do you how do you find that how do you um, just there's you know obviously as you all know from our experiences, you know, there are times when things really work. Yeah. And it, it's almost like you're, you're a band on the road and yes. it's just everything's magic. And there are other times when it doesn't quite click or for some reason or something doesn't quite happen. Um, but you seem, you seem to find the, uh, the magic more often than not. Well, I think it's a lot to do with, you know, how you get on with people. And, um, you, you know, and, and, and I also feel, you know, I don't like being okay, this is my shoot and everyone's going to do what I'm going to say. I don't, it has to be a very collaboration, same. Everybody's input is totally valuable and, and you know, nothing can happen with it. If you take one piece away and it becomes a totally different shoot, it's, a, it, it, it's about relationships with people, you know. So you take one person away and the conversation is different. Um... So I think that's how, why people have their teams, you know, they stick with the same hair and makeup people if they can and, you know, they continue with the same model. And I think that's kind of what's missing today because it's just like everybody's stabbing at everything and, you know, let's bring in another young photographer or another and now we'll try it with him and give him some actress or, or some, you know, and there's no relationship. You know, but they are, so the only person I know that still goes and, and works in that way is Stephen Meisel, you know. He has his team of hair and makeup, Pat and Guido, and he's, you know, they, get, they work with him every day. And they have done for many years. And... You know, they have a conversation, and it's an ongoing conversation, and one develops and the other develops, and it's... 
It's kind of magical. He's yeah. one of the very few that's managed to maintain this, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah, well, he's very because stubborn. It has, and, uh, yeah. it has um, changed. I mean, it's been another paradigm shift in a different way. I mean, to, to my mind, digital has caused that to some degree. I hate it when that happened. I, 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 I remember the moment and... Um, all the photographers were suddenly starting to use it because they realized that if they didn't, they'd be left behind. And I remember on a shoot with um, Craig McDean, and, you know, he was fumbling because it was the first time he'd used it, and he, he did it with a little card, and then, you know, you'd have to stop and look at all the pictures that were on the card, and it's so... You know, you you lost the momentum. I mean, he, he, he sorted it out how he does it now, and they're all sorting it out how they do it now. But um, It was a major leap, wasn't it? It was a major leap, and the whole th mood changed. And I don't know, you know, everybody, nobody looks at the girl anymore. They only look at the screen. Um, and she's like, you know, doing all these things. Even the photographer, a lot of the time, doesn't look at her. You know, it's it's crazy. So that kind of relationship is gone. You know, and it's like a guy with a camera would seduce a girl, sometimes literally. But you know, they don't do that anymore because they're not really. They're looking, even if they're for the second looking at the girl afterwards, they're really judging the picture by what's on the screen and not from the picture they took a few seconds before. And also you, you, you can manipulate it so much and it's, you know, the depth of field is forever. And the sharpness. And, the, and it's the sharpness. And it's, it's funny because I think we didn't work with Bruce for a while and then... We worked with him, and his pictures came in, and of course he was not digital. And his pictures came in, and, and, and Anna was like, they're all out of focus. And I said, no, they're not. This is film. This is the difference, you know. And it's funny, and the, your eye just gets so used to looking at that perfect sharpness, which has been retouched like crazy too, you know. Even when they say it hasn't, it has, you know. But... Um, I remember, I remember talking to Peter Lindbergh and his sort of smudgy film, which was, you know, so, there's so much atmosphere in it and things. And, and, and I said, I like that sort of, can we do it? You know, can you use film? Can we do it? He said, oh, I can do it digitally. It's not the same. It's not the same. And his pictures changed when he became digital. The soul, <laughs> you you lose the soul. No, I think you can tell a digital picture. Yeah. Ninety-nine. I mean, then you know, there's there's people that use digital for digital, and they didn't work before, and they went straight to digital, and then it's somehow it's okay because it makes sense. It's just unfortunately, if you compare before and after of a photographer, usually the ones before are better. I mean, there's, there's one photographer I work with, and um, they, I thought the pictures, when I used to work a lot, were amazing. 
and now it's so digital and so people are moved around it just doesn't have the same thing I mean it's still really good pictures but it's uh, it doesn't have that sort of passion about it you know tell me a little bit about Stephen Meiser because to me um, he's possibly the greatest fashion photographer of the last 20 years in some ways Yes, you're right. And um, he's managed to make that work for him. Yes. He's funny, you know. He's, he, he, in a way, he stays very isolated. He stays in his own little bubble. Um, he won't travel anywhere. He won't, uh, he won't do a picture that takes more than 45 minutes to get to. <laughs> and there was a moment where he could only do it if you were allowed to smoke in that place or something. But um, he doesn't want anyone seeing what he does, um, doesn't talk to anyone. It's kind of difficult. It's difficult to work with him because um, he. it's difficult to discuss it beforehand. Um, you know, he does, he seems very closed, but he sees so much. I, I, I don't know how he does that. I think he gets his information from other people. And um, he has an extraordinary knowledge of fashion photography. I mean, I've always wanted to do an interview with him because uh, occasionally I've sat down at lunchtime or something and, and talked to him, and it's fascinating. Um, he seems to have a real knowledge of fashion. Yeah, as and well. a love, and you an, know. An understanding. And yes, a... he does. A complete understanding. Um, which so many photographers these days don't. You know, they have not a clue. They wouldn't know a good dress if it <laughs> stood up and hit them, but uh, which is sad. Yeah, where do you think that will go? Um, I mean, it seems that every, every, a few years ago, everyone was saying, well, magazines are going to die. There won't be any magazines left. But, but of course, as it turns out, there have never been so many magazines. I know. And well, we, a lot doesn't mean good. No. I'm, you see? that. <laughs> but, but I think that one of the reasons the magazines have to stay is that those companies will never get that advertising revenue online that they, yeah. get, in, that they get from a hard copy. Yes, but I don't think they make their money from that anymore. I mean, I don't know exactly. I, I, money doesn't really <laughs> interest me. But, um, but in terms of magazines, of the survival of the magazine... And fashion photography, even photography. There's so few. Well, I worry about fashion photography that it can disappear altogether. You know, I mean, even within myself, when I'm working, and I work for several different magazines now, and you know, what I love to do now is it's very kind of reportagey. I want it to be very real, um, and it, it it's difficult to put fashion into a very real because how often do you see a girl walking along the street you know completely decked up in Prada or something I mean you don't you know she's got sneakers on the bottom or whatever it is Grace I'm interested in sort of how fashion photography has changed as an art form in the sense that nowadays 
some fashion pictures are reaching huge prices at auction and, and not just one or two photographers right. and not just, you know, for example, Helmut Newton. Uh, there was a picture of his that went last year for $300,000. There was a, a diptych of his from the Dressed Naked series, two very large prints that went for $670,000 a few years ago. So this is, you know, art uh, or it's being sold as art. Yes, well, you know, I think in some instances, like him, I, I think it's, I think it's fine and good, you know. But I think when it's down the line and anybody takes a picture and sells it for a hundred thousand dollars, it's ridiculous. You know? And I mean, a good picture is a good picture, whether it's a fashion picture or an art picture or any picture. It's a good picture. So it's a measure of how good that picture is, really. For me, um, and if you want to call it art, call it art. My big beef is don't call it fashion if you can't see the clothes. <laughs> That's always been very important to you. Yes. And well, and so I don't, you know, isn't that why we're here? You know, why I'm here? The, it's very important I to me as well. I work on fashion photography. I don't work on art photography. I mean, I could and I would if, you know, I would help an artist or... Or something, if I could, because if I like the photographer, both him and his picture, you know. For instance, I, I was going. I, I don't really like working with art photographers, and there's a lot of that going on now because there's the one side of them where it's not expensive to work with them because they don't have that fashion mind of let's have three Winnebagos and etc. But <laughs> there's the other side that costs more, and that's the one that I got involved with um, Gregory Crudson, who I love his pictures. I mean, they, I guess they were all those things I said I'm sort of complaining about in that it's pin sharp forever, but, uh, but I like his mind and things. And I was going to do a series of pictures with him for Vogue. And then it, it became too complicated because I could see that you weren't going to see the clothes. In fact, his idea was to take all the clothes off and leave them in a heap on the floor. So I'm like, I don't think that's going to go down too well, um, particularly as it was going to cost an unbelievable amount of money. It was going to cost what it costs him to do one of his pictures, which is a lot. And he only likes to photograph on, you know, at five o'clock on Tuesday on at the end of August or something. You know, he's very specific about the light and things and when he works and how he works. Um, and he keeps saying, oh, it'll be cheap because I'll get the house from a friend of mine or something. But actually, you know, he has to light it like a mile away. <laughs> Everything is lit, almost more so than in a film. So it, it became kind of, it wasn't going to work. Too expensive. Too expensive, and then you know I could see them saying, oh, "Where are the clothes?" She's not smiling, <laughs> you know, or something, she's not smiling. you know. And I, I, I certainly couldn't say to him, "And could you have her smile?" I, you know, I would feel embarrassed. So, so I said, you know, I think we should just cut loose. Yeah, I don't think it's going to work. I was sorry because I like him, so I like his pictures, and that's art, you know. That I think is art, but that. You know, it is art because that's what he does. He doesn't do fashion. But I, there's a lot of more art photographers that are doing fashion more and more, as they say, now. And they shouldn't <laughs> because I think it's ruining them. 
um, they're becoming too commercially minded. It can happen, you know. Oh, it it sounds good. It sounds good. Oh, you're working for Vogue. I think, it, you know, that's exciting. And you become known even, you know, faster if you're young. But I don't think it's necessarily good for you because they start being given all the things they can't do. And as an artist, I think you should not have those limitations. And actually, their fashion pictures are not that good, you know. But the lines have become blurred, haven't yes, they? Yes, very much. And I guess it's, you know, when people see, particularly young people uh, who don't have the experience, but they see the prices that some of these pictures oh, are going yes. for. Oh, yes. I mean, their eyes are out um, on stocks, I'm sure, yeah. Particularly as there aren't really the budgets anymore that we used to have, let's say, in the mid-noughties, before the crash, when you could say that you know people were spending a lot of money to create shoots, yeah. be it a magazine or an advertiser, designer. I mean, certainly a lot of pictures that I've worked on are, are unbelievably expensive, you know. I just had to close my ears to it because you, you think of all the things that that money could do. Those pictures can't be done without without those budgets. You know, a lot of the pictures I worked with Annie on, like, a, a series I did for um, Alice in Wonderland, which had incredible pictures. Amazing pictures, yeah, with all the designers. But that budget was like two, three hundred thousand, you know. And nobody has that anymore? No. Not even Vogue? No. <laughs> Least of all Vogue, <laughs> yeah. No, they don't. Or... If they do, they don't want to spend it. I don't know. And I don't think we'll see those budgets coming back ever. ever. No, you won't. You won't. So that's, that's had an so impact the on the way, kind of photos. Absolutely. That you are so limited. You know, you tend to do it in the studio because you can't afford to go anywhere else. I mean, I think advertising still has a few big budget things. But um, I'm not even sure they're producing that interesting a picture they you know they want to see the bag so the bag is like just a picture of a bag and they might shoot it in the bahamas or something so it costs money to get there and it took 50 people to do that picture for some strange reason um so you know obviously it costs a lot of money but it's a boring picture you know i think from a photographer's point of view those commercial jobs used to pay um, towards the budget of the editorial jobs. Yes. So, for you know, example, people you would do something on the back of if you went to somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And even, you know, in the days when I was doing Italian Vogue shoots, you'd get $6,000 for your shoots. So if you spent half a day in a studio, you'd probably break even. Yes. But if you were going to Mississippi or... Uh, you wouldn't break even. No. You wouldn't, but you weren't bothered because it was a time when... You knew that something would come out of that story. Yes. Whether and it, was, it did, you know. And it yeah. always did. It always did, yeah. And now I'm not sure that anything comes out of an Italian Vogue story in the same way or, or any magazine or story. Or any magazine, really. And I'm not sure who's looking at them. Yeah. No, I mean, now the most important thing is the celebrity that's in the picture. And that's where the money goes. Because I think they, they still get paid a lot of money. If it's advertising, not for editorial, obviously, but... Yeah, and that's interesting because quite a lot of the photos that are selling for high prices at auction are celebrities, nudity. Yeah. It's a little bit like Instagram. Yes. 
That's obvious, yeah. But they're selling for forty, fifty thousand. Yeah, all the wrong reasons. <laughs> oh, it's Madonna. Yeah, so fine. I mean, who cares? Well, everybody does. I don't. So that's impacted what we do. Yeah. Celebrities suddenly become yes. well, not suddenly, but it has yeah. become a key word. Yes. And I'm not that interested in it. No, the poor old models are really suffering. You know. They can never do a cover anymore, you know. They're always celebrities now. Yeah. And models from doing covers used to get makeup contracts and things like that. But, you know, so since they can't, they don't. And anyway, the celebrities have gone into advertising as well, so they're very busy. Tell me just one, one more thing I wanted to talk about, just backtracking a little bit. Um, the September issue when they were making that film, the documentary in which you feature, did, did you have any, sort of have any sense of what sort of impact that would have? No, absolutely none. No, I didn't. Um, I think it was sort of at the time my book came out, my first book came out. I, they were filming that for a year. And for a year, I slammed the door in their face. I would not. And, uh, you know, to me, it, spoiled everything firstly i don't think you should see behind the scenes but secondly everybody speaks differently if they're on camera so you know they would be around vogue and i would be going to see anna with a very important question or something and um you know suddenly i'd turn around and they were following me into her office so i turn around and walk away again I'd go back to my office and slam the door and wait for them to go to lunch or something because I did not want to ask questions and have that. Because once you've got the answer, you've got the answer. You can't go back and say, oh, by the way. And I know, you know, a couple of times Anna said, oh, well, you know, I was just making it interesting because I've been um, mic'd. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, this is such a waste of time. So I wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it. And only at the very last, I don't know, a couple of weeks that they were there, and she said, you have to be in this because you're kind of a big part of Vogue and it would be very strange to not have you. I mean, I literally was not on anything. Everybody was walking around very dressed up with makeup on and things because they thought they might be in the film. And uh, <laughs> I wasn't in it. So except for, I think, one time when I was in Paris or something. By the way, this is a very funny moment when I we're going to visit Gautier and I'm in the elevator with Anna that's really uncomfortable because the cameraman's in there too. Um, anyway, eventually I was told I had to and they said, oh, you know, he's going to come on your Mizell shoot and I thought, oh good, because Mizell won't have him so sure enough he wouldn't so I got out of that one and then when I, you know, when I was really forced I decided the only thing to do was to make friends with everybody. So I took them all out for lunch, got them all drunk. And, and I started talking to the cameraman who was really interesting and really nice. So they filmed a little bit of me, you know, and then they said, oh, can we do an interview um, in the summer? I said, okay, but you have to come to my house in Long Island. And they came, I gave them lunch and we had a really fun time and I liked them very much. And now I really like RJ Cutler and hoping to do a project with him. Then, you know, they disappeared and they were in the editing room for, I don't know, nearly a year, I think. 
and they said, oh, well, we can, now we can um, show you a first thing of it. I remember we all went to a screening. There were two screenings. There were one screening for the very intelligent editors of Vogue, like the features and people. And then there was another screening for the fashion editors and the dimwits like me. And, and Anna wasn't at either of them. When I saw it, I could not believe there was so much of me in it. I said, I think that's a big mistake. That's really terrible. So, you know, Anna called us in and said, you know, what did you think? And I said, well, this is way too much of me. And, you know, can you get them to cut it out? It's kind of stupid. <laughs> anyway, it didn't get cut. It played out. And it was sort of at the same time when my book came out, which, you know, played very much to my favor. <laughs> but it, it was... It was extraordinary. I remember it's a friend of mine said, you know, once this film comes out, you'll get, everyone's going to recognize you. And no one before I was, no, I, you know, I barely had a name. It was, I mean, just people in the business knew me, but. Well, you were very well known in the business, but, but I guess not the film, so much. the film made you a household name. Yeah. And I walked out of here and people were like shouting from across the street. And it was like, who, me? Really? And I'm not being coy, you know. It's, it was really funny. And they were always very nice, you know. So, you know, little by little I began to accept it. And then in the end, you know, you use it to your advantage. But it's funny. I get stopped all the time, still now. And they talk about that film, which is now 10 years old. Yeah. Oh, I saw it last night, or I saw it on a plane, or, you know, it's one of the first of those documentaries that became a well-known documentary, in a way. Well, it's very it, well it, made. Yeah, it, they, it, they they, very, I think the Valentino well. one came out at the same time, and that was good. That was the same sort of... But you're right, there have been quite a few since, yeah. and uh, it started yeah, something. it really, and all the fashion people like McQueen and things, you know, they've all done those, but... That still remains one that everybody remembers. And before that, I found. And they're funny. The I mean, they, they, you know, it wasn't supposed to be about me and Anna at all, and it wasn't. It was almost not really supposed to be about Anna. It was supposed to be about the Met and the making of the Met and the making of, you know, afterwards they did another film called The First Monday in May, which is what the original film was supposed to be. But. <laughs> They were given access to the mat, to the mat ball, to everything. And, you know, they didn't use very much of that footage. And they saw a dynamic between myself and Anna, and they sort of honed in on that. And it, you know, I guess that's why it had this appeal. But no, I had, I had no idea. But, you know, it enabled me to do so many things since, like, write a memoir and <laughs> be wonderful yeah do several other books and, and I think it, it was very real and as you say it showed that dynamic between the two of you and it showed it did show what goes on yeah. behind the scenes and I, I feel a lot of the fashion movies well not that there have been that many but they're pretty silly really dumb really stupid I hate them I mean you have to go back to blow up yeah to find something with a fashion context yeah. that actually means something it's, it's, it's yeah. a great piece of work yeah no um, all this um, Devil Wears Prada and 
and the Ben Stiller movies and things like that. I think the Robert Altman. Yeah. Oh, I hated that. Which was that. surprising. Oh, that was. It was so yeah. bad. Yeah, it was embarrassing, and uh, for me, it was embarrassing for fashion, you know. But um, but it's there, so <laughs> and it doesn't go away, and people remember. Tell me a little bit about the shoot you did in Ireland with Annie, <laughs> which was a big spread. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I had decided to take Daria because she bought a house in Ireland, and I love her, and she's beautiful, and she's really like a woman. And we also decided that we shouldn't do any hair or makeup. But then we decided we would take a hairdresser, Julian, anyway, but that he wasn't allowed to do anything. And then we said, we'll just work out of the back of a car, which I don't think really happened. You know, it was all those things trying to cut down to become like the old, because I think she said that she wanted to move around Ireland a lot. And obviously, if you've got a big bus, you can't. So, But in the end, we were like six cars, so it was the same thing. It was a pain in the ass. You know? <laughs> and she brought a whole team of people, but she didn't want anybody else to bring a team of people. Like, no one was allowed assistance. I think I had an assistant because I had to do the packing and the unpacking and things. I think it was too quick, you know. I've seen quite a lot of Ireland, and I feel that we missed most of it. You know, I think we could have seen so much more, but she had it in her head from the set person, and they just discussed everything, and I was left out of it, which made me mad that they were going to do this, 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 and this, and it was decided before they went, and I think that was not a good thing. But, you know, Daria's always beautiful, and... I, I I had her suggest who she wanted to take, and she said, well, well, there's this actor I think is really fabulous, and I've seen Amazing Girls. I never watched Girls, so I didn't know what she was talking about. She showed me a picture, and he's such a funny-looking guy, and he's Adam Driver, who is now in Marriage Story and, you know, in so many movies, and it was such a weird person, in a way, for her to pick. And so I said, oh, okay. So we did. And then we had to dress him, and he's like six foot seven or something. <laughs> but he was so amazing and funny, and we had we had a really great time. We um, Daria came in her own little mini, and we were driving all over, and he was in it, and he'd hardly fit in it because he's so tall. I don't know if there's any memorable pictures out of that. I wish they had been. There should have been. You know, you don't always make it. Yeah, as you as you say, time is very important. Yeah, and it's very rare now to yeah. to be allowed the time yeah. to be able to make the time. And even if you know, and time is money, and you know, no photographer or model or anybody wants to be away from being able to make advertising money or something. You know, so they will only give you a day or two days if you're lucky. Yeah. Tell me one more thing, Grace. Um, just working, having been a model yourself and seen it from that side, how does that impact on how you work with models now from the other side? And I think it gives me an understanding. I mean, you know, I had a much easier time when I was a model and I certainly didn't get on a plane every other day. And, um, but so it makes me appreciate if someone flies in specially for me and... You know, the agents are terrible. They push those girls and they have them come off a flight from somewhere and go straight to set. And 
uh, from a red-eye flight. Yeah, which, you know, I'd never had to do myself. Um, but, you know, you do understand how they feel if it's very cold or very hot or shoes are too small or whatever, you know. So I think I'm maybe, you know, some people insist or get annoyed if the girls complain, but, um, you know, I don't like it if they complain, but, but I will sympathize if it's a real, genuine complaint and try to change it or make it better. And what do you look for in a girl when you're casting um, for a story? I look for a girl that's brave and I look for a girl that is different. She doesn't have to be classically beautiful. I do like redheads. <laughs> <laughs> and I like them you know, to be tall because it's much easier to put clothes on them if they're tall than if they're small. I mean, some girls are smaller and they're very successful like Kate Moss or something, but it's just easier. But some girls are very good at managing things that don't fit them and you never know, like Linda Evangelista could make any dress work. It could be a hideous dress and she can make it look beautiful just by twisting or turning or whatever and if it didn't fit her, she could somehow stand in such a way that you would never know. And that's a good model. And there's not too many of them because there's a million little girls who are very beautiful and all they can do is stand there. I mean, the ones who really make it are the ones that give you, yeah. that give a lot, don't yeah. they? Yeah, they're brave. They don't, you know, they're quite happy if you photograph the back of their head. There are some girls that will twist their neck around. <laughs> if, you, if you have them walking away, they're like, <laughs> um, but there are some that are smart and, and, and realize that, you know, if one picture's from the back of your head, it doesn't really matter, you know. And they can really make the pictures. Yeah. There's so few of those girls, and particularly now. Well, because no one's given the training anymore, you know, because the celebrities are doing it. And then it becomes something yeah. else entirely. Yeah. And then it's dictated by them and... You have to go to L.A. because that's where they are, and they'll give you two hours, you know, <laughs> and they'll come with their own hair and makeup. And then I don't find it interesting. I really don't. If they're dictating what you're doing, I don't find it interesting. That's why, you know, I personally almost never work with celebrities. I Sometimes the men I do, because particularly if they're English, because the English ones are much more forgiving in a way and they don't come with an entourage or all the English boys are better Adam Driver's an exception but you know and Grace do you think there's a future for magazines and what does that look like I think it's really tough I can't see how they can go on but then they somehow you need to have a magazine that you know drives the website or the whatever you know because if you don't have that then what's it based on it's you know the ones that have just gone digital or whatever it's called I don't know how long they'll last well I'm very not a digital person so I can't really measure because I never look at anything online or so I don't know what exists and what doesn't and it doesn't and I can't feel it touch it I like a magazine I like paper I love books but even Vogue, which has been so much a part of your life and which has had such an influence. I, yes, they're having a really tough time. I mean, all of them, all the Vogues. You know. 
And, you know, American Vogue used to be the one with the huge budgets and they could do anything they wanted and now they can't. And, you know, they have to think of ways around it. So many that I think, you know, in a way the magazine doesn't come first because they have to rationalize. And it's, it's very hard. So they have to think of all the different ways they can make money from a shoot, you know. So the shoot has to mean so much more than just a shoot that's on a still picture. And that is like multitasking. Yeah. Which fortunately the new generation can do. Personally, I can't. I really can't. There seems to be, um, with the new generation, as we call them, there seems to be a fashion, a fad for going back to film. Have you seen this much? Yes, there's a lot of the English photographers use film, and young ones even. Um, I don't know if it'll solve the problem, but, um, you know, you've still got all the other problems, like no money. So, um, And film is more expensive. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's more expensive to use film and print and... And scan and to do, I mean, digital. Right, is already there. Seems to be cheaper. Yeah. In the budget, um, in the budget stakes. Yeah. But then digital, they tend to retouch so much, and that's expensive. I, I, I don't know about magazines. I, I, I almost don't want to, you know, put my hand up and say it's over. I keep feeling it is, and then they're still there, you know. And I keep thinking, you know, what could happen that would suddenly bring them all back? Um, I think they have to get on the same. I think the transition time is not working, where two generations meet and the one generation doesn't understand the other generation, working both ways. And I think that doesn't make for a happy result but let's say if everybody is young in the composition then um, it'll work for their people right now we're trying to please everywhere we're trying to please the old market and the new young market and their thoughts are so divided that how can you possibly have one thing that makes both people happy you can't I feel a great rift, and I just, you know, it's even with, like, my assistant, who's obviously a lot younger than me. And she speaks a different language to me. You know, her whole lifestyle is different. It's how you go shopping, you know. They don't need shops anymore. I mean, even if you do a magazine, where do you buy it? You can't find anywhere to buy it anymore. And books are suffering terribly, which is awful. I mean, all those, so many bookshops are, are closing down. And then people try to f say, well, what are people, this is what people want. They want it to be more commercial, more this, and, and then they, you know, that doesn't sell either. So. Yeah, it's a strange time. I mean, it will work through and something else will come in its place, but... Um, for now, this the you know the two things working together to me are not working. They're not complementing each other. They're 
they're choking each other. I mean, the ones that seem to be doing much better, except I don't know what much better is, is all the sort of individual magazines that, you know. The independent magazines. The independent that magazines. come out maybe twice a year. Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. It's hard I mean, to sustain it, a monthly. I mean, it, yeah, and, and, and also, even the way fashion is, they have so many collections now, and it's stupid because they're all the same. You know, it's just a different color. <laughs> one's in cotton and one's in wool. But everyone's being forced to do so much, too much, and every place. And everyone wants content. Yeah. And now, and lots of yeah. it, yeah. for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. How, how, how does one make that work? Yeah, you can't. You can't. I mean, you know, the, the shoots I do now for, like, the independent magazines like I work for Document they don't pay me and they don't pay anybody else and that's okay but you can't put m money into it if you're not making any money you need them to pay the expenses yeah. to at yeah. least cover the expenses but they can't which they don't always do no. And I don't think photographers can continue to pay. No, they can't. They could in the beginning because they still had the old money from <laughs> the old money. But they, now they, they don't want to do that. Yeah, it's run out because they themselves are suffering from and and not getting advertising. Jobs. Yeah. I mean, I think everything's going into film, movie film. That's what's happening. But when I look at, you know... I don't know what they are, websites or something. Is it websites? Online. And those movies they do, they're just embarrassing. They're as bad as the Devil Wears Prada. Actually, they're a lot worse because they're amateurs doing it, you know. Why can't it just be beautiful? I don't understand. What, what's wrong with beautiful? It seems to be a dirty word now. They've got to be turning cartwheels and laughing in a dress that could not really turn a cartwheel. That's ridiculous. Well, people are trying very hard yeah, to too do hard. something. <laughs> too hard. Sit back and relax. Grace, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. You have been listening to the National Gallery of Ireland podcast. This series, inspired by photography, is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media. Subscribe to our podcast at iTunes or SoundCloud or visit nationalgallery.ie.